Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Amen. If you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, again, we're going to be discussing the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' first recorded sermon. And if you remember, Jesus is speaking to a crowd on a hill. I've actually been there where they think that this is the place that Jesus uh, preached. It wasn't so much a mountain, it truly is a hill. And and the crowd that, that is present there were his disciples. There was probably the common everyday people. In addition, there were probably some religious leaders there as well. And the way that Jesus structured this sermon is beautiful. He begins with the first 12 verses, which, which are known as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes speak about the character traits of a person who has been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. It speaks about true kingdom people, those who have been trained, the character traits of who they are from the inside out. And so first he deals with that in the first 12 verses, and then he moves in verses 13 through 16, what do we do? Well, kingdom people are to be salt and light. We, we talked about that last week. Salt, we have a subtle influence into the world the same way salt has with food. Light, it's bold, breaks into a dark world with the gospel. Now, what Jesus shared, I'm sure that at that point, the people that are listening were probably amazed at his teaching, but I think what they were more amazed at is what he hadn't said. At this point, he hadn't said anything about the law. He hadn't said anything about the Pharisees and the scribes or giving them recognition or any respect. And I think the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of squirming their seats a little bit. They're kind of saying, well, when's this guy going to get to be? You've got to obey the law. You've got to do this thing by merit. Come on, bring it. Nothing. And so what Jesus does here in this section, he's going to bring us into an understanding, what do kingdom people do with the law? What do we do? What we'll see this morning in the sermon, Jesus will explain how the Old Testament functions in the kingdom of God, both the law and the writings of the prophets. So the first thing we'll see, what place does the Old Testament scriptures hold in the kingdom? First thing, Jesus upheld and fulfilled the Scriptures. Jesus upheld and fulfilled the Scriptures. Jesus did not come to abolish the law by bringing grace. No, He fulfilled the law. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So he begins right there with, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. So again, Jesus has been teaching about kingdom citizens, who we are. Then he talks about what we do. But now he's going he's to do a shift here. And in this section in verses 17 through 20, He's going to answer, how is it done? How does that work? I want to give you one word. The word is righteousness. Righteousness. God is calling us to live a holy life. God is going to bring us to the point where, do you understand that your life actually does matter? And the way you live out Christ, it really matters. And Jesus is going to really press that in this section here. And there's a lot of confusion with Christians about the Old Testament law. Now, the law, these are found in the first five books of Moses, and particularly the Ten Commandments. Many people think that Christ abolished the law and brought grace. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. That's not the point. Now, the law and the prophets, that represents the whole of the New Testament, I mean, Old Testament. 
It's all of it. It's the written scriptures that Jesus preached from in his day. It was what the the apostles originally taught from in their day. And it is impossible to understand and accept the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Paul put it like this, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Understand that all the scriptures that is inspired by God right there, God breathes, is the Old Testament that Paul is speaking about. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Now, we know that the New Testament also is God-breathed. Now, we know that through the canonization process that I'll take care of in a whole other study sometime. But understand right here, he's talking about the Old Testament. So what's meant by the law? Jesus meant the entire law found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And, and the law consisted of three major components. You had the moral law. This is what consisted with the Ten Commandments and the great moral principles that are laid down there. You had the judicial law. This consisted of the legislative law and the nation of Israel as a theocracy before God. And also the ceremonial law. This is the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the rituals in connection with worship in the temple. And the whole of the Old Testament, all of it, is absolute and eternal and unchangeable. It is God-breathed. It is the living Word. And according to Jesus Christ, the only possible course of action for anyone, including Himself, was to live out in conformity to the written Word. Now, Jesus taught the Old Testament as truth. In His high priestly prayer, right before He went to the cross, this is what He said in John 17, 5 and 6. He says, Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And I have manifested myself to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Well, what word was that? The Old Testament. They kept it. They honored it. People struggle with this idea of the authority of the Bible, the authority of God's word. And the reason that people struggle with this concept of the authority of God's Word, because they say that our culture has changed. And because of all the differences in our cultures now, I mean, how could possibly the Word of God apply? I mean, it doesn't fit. It's actually the reverse of that. Understand that the Bible doesn't fit the world, and it never has. The world has always been in rejection to the Bible and in sin against the Bible. And the Bible is always relevant to today. Because it is the living word. It is his infallible word, his unchangeable word. Jesus put it like this in John 3, 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. And Jesus arrived on the scene preaching that the kingdom of God had arrived, that light had broken into a dark world. And he is saying here that he is the one that is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, there was a problem with the religious leaders that were there. They added to the Word of God. They had hundreds of man-made traditions, and they burdened down the people with these traditions. Matter of fact, when Jesus spoke about these leaders in Mark 7, this is what he said in verses 7 through 9. He says, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. And he also was saying to them, you are experts in setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And Jesus is clear here, he did not come to invalidate the law. He came to accomplish it, to fulfill it. That's why he says, do not think I came to abolish it. I came to fulfill the scriptures. Now, To fulfill the Scriptures, this means that the Scriptures find its fullest meaning in Jesus Christ. The meaning is in Him and by Him and for Him. It is about Him. All of the New Testament and all of the Old Testament, literally Jesus is at its core. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were given by the Old Testament prophets. And He had said this to the religious leaders in the very beginning of His ministry in John chapter 5, verse 39. 
He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these, they testify about me. He also said to his disciples after he rose from the grave, almost the same thing, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was with you and all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they must be fulfilled and they will be, they're fulfilled in him. He said, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 1.19, he says, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, it was not yes and no, but it is yes in Him. For as many are the promises of God, they are yes in Him. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Understand that the Old Testament stands It has not been put aside, abolished. And it stands in unity with the New Testament. It makes the whole of Scripture. Now this is why Jesus said in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke shall pass from the law until it's accomplished. See, some people believe that that Jesus came to abolish the law. And instead, he he has grace. But guys, grace blesses us and helps us understand the law with such clarity. And he says that not even the smallest letter or the the stroke, and and a stroke is, in Hebrew, it's called a seraph, and it's a little mark on a letter that distinguishes from a group of letters. He says, nothing will will change this. Not until heaven and earth pass. So he came to accomplish or fulfill the law. How does he do that? Well, some people think that he fulfilled the law in his teaching, that as the law was presented, Christ actually came and, if you will, kind of colored in, kind of expanded, and it's true, he did that. Others say, well, Jesus came and he fulfilled the law because he met its demands. He did. He's perfect God in the flesh. There wasn't one command that he didn't fulfill absolutely, righteously, and perform. Some would say that he is that that's perfect model for us to, to look at, and that's true too. But can I tell you, it's more than that. Most importantly, Jesus filled the Old Testament by being its fulfillment. He is righteousness. It's more than just teaching. It's more than just modeling. He came as the divine righteous one. In him is the fulfillment of all that is written in the scriptures. But how does he do that? How does he fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, first, he fulfilled the messianic predictions. There were prophets that prophesied about a coming one and understand that Jesus in his first coming has fulfilled over 300 prophecies. He's the fulfillment of that. Remember, after Jesus was resurrected, there were these two guys that were on the road to Emmaus, and they were bummed. They thought it was over. And suddenly, Jesus is walking with them, and he begins to reveal himself to them. And listen to what he said to them. In Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, he says, O foolish men, and slow in heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, that's the law, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. Jesus was a long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who fulfills the law. He is the one who fulfills everything the prophets spoke about. Now, Jesus also fulfilled the law because he was made under the law. Now, understand, he is the author of Scripture. He is God. But yet he submitted himself to the authority of Scripture as being under the the law. This is spoken about by Paul in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. What that means is that Jesus kept the law to the smallest detail. At the end of his life, no one could bring a word against him. And praying to the Father, he said this in verse 4 of John 17, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Everything that 
that he needed to do, he has done. And this is why when John the Baptist saw him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. It is in Christ. He has accomplished it. He has fulfilled it. The Messianic predictions, he was made under the law. But also third, by dying on the the cross, Jesus fulfills the law. What it means is that he has fulfilled the ceremonial law. He has paid for all sins. No more animal sacrifices are needed. And the center of our whole faith, it rests in the beauty of the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, His death, resurrection, and ascension, the whole and ceremonial law was fulfilled. In confirmation of that, the veil of the temple has been torn in two at his death, and finally the temple and all the things that belonged to it were destroyed. It was upon the cross that the perfect Son of God endured the wrath of His Father for our sin. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. And this was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. Isaiah, looking to the coming one, said this in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being, it fell upon Him. And by His scourging were healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The punishment of our sin fell upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And and I hope you understand the importance of the cross because the love of God and the justice of God are both found in the cross. The love of God. God so loved the world, he sent his Son But in His Son, He judged the world. Because of God's love, it doesn't mean He can just give sin a pass. Sin has to be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And if you do not receive Christ, it will be dealt with with you, in you. But those who trust in Christ, it's been dealt with in the Son. Now, this is why when, when God was speaking to Moses... God said this in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He says, And the Lord passed by in front of him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, he's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God dealt with the iniquity of us and the Son. So He's fulfilled the messianic predictions. He was made under the law. The death on the cross is a fulfillment. But in addition, He fulfilled the law because He gave us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's gonna, Paul deals with this in the book of Romans in chapter 8. And this is what Paul says. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit And what the Apostle Paul says in that section right there is two things. The way the Lord fulfilled the law was in himself and the way that he fulfills the law in us. But I got to tell you, there's a problem. And this problem is pervasive in the church. There's a misunderstanding when it comes to the grace of God. And there's a misunderstanding when it comes to the gospel of Christ. And it can lead to two opposite and equally destructive errors. One is legalism and the other one's license. License is where people dismiss the law. They say, oh, God's just given me grace, so now I get to do whatever I want. It's no big deal. I go, what's the big deal? When I get to heaven, I'm going to be perfected, so <laughs> party, man. License. This is why Paul in Romans 6.15 says, what then? She'll sin what, what shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He says, may it never be. May it never be. May that never be spoken of any people who claim Christ. Legalism. People believe that, okay, the cross 
paid for our sins. It kind of gave us that entry point into the kingdom of God, but now, man, I got to work at it. And I mean, I got to labor and strive, and I got to really somehow appease God or, or please God. And both are extremes. In a nutshell, here's how the gospel works with the law. The law drives us to the gospel. And the gospel, it frees us to obey the law. The law drives us to the gospel. And the gospel frees us to obey the law. Understand, the law was not given so that we could keep it. You can't do it. You're never going to be able to perfect yourself enough to actually keep the law of God. And the law wasn't given so that we could keep it. The law was given so that we could realize that we're sinners before a holy God. And it drives us to Christ. This is why God wants us to know the gospel. It's interesting, these two ways of legalism and license, this past Monday, our evangelism team, I went out with a team and we went over to the Mission Viejo Mall and, and I don't know if you've been to the Mission Viejo Mall, it's really nice now, but they have these little stations with chairs, really comfy chairs and, you know, these little tables and so we, caught, we saw a couple Marines over there and so our team went over there and we, we met two men. Uh, th- these two Marines were Jacob and Charles and real nice guys and, and what we do is we try to ask them what's called a diagnostic question. And a diagnostic question helps us to diagnose what they believe. And so the question goes something like this. If you were to die and stand before God and he was to ask you, why should I allow you in heaven, what would you say? And the response from Jacob was really interesting. He says, well, I know I'll be in heaven when I complete my next sacrament. Okay. He's saying, I'm guaranteed heaven as long as I got this next sacrament covered. I got two. I need the third one. And Done. Now, Charles had an interesting response to him. I'm going to save that for the end of the message. But for Jacob right now, we said, hey, Jacob, would you allow us to share how the Scriptures speak about that statement you just made? He said, sure. And so we wanted to talk to Jacob about reconciliation with God, that it's not about keeping or making or adding to the Bible, but what does the Bible say? And the Bible says, Jacob, that God wants to be reconciled to you, that He loves you. But there's a problem, your sin. And because of your sin, it's an offense to God. And no matter how hard you work, it won't be enough. That's why God sent His Son, Jesus. And He died on the cross for you. It's personal. And He paid for your sin. But you must repent of your sin. And you must turn to Christ by faith. Do you understand? He said, yeah. It was like, boom, lights came on. In fact, he understood so much, he asked his friend Charles to leave. He said, leave me alone, man. I want to spend some time with these guys. And so he wanted to pray to receive Christ. And so we had the opportunity and the privilege to lead this young man to Jesus. And he suddenly was freed from that burden of the law. And he found grace of God in Christ. First thing we see this morning, Jesus upheld and he fulfilled the Scriptures. It's in him. Second thing, so what place does the Old Testament Scriptures hold in the kingdom? Kingdom people will keep and teach the Scriptures. Kingdom people will keep and teach the Scriptures. I think it's easy for for us as Christians to kind of dismiss the Old Testament law that, eh, that was then, this is now. But look at verse 19. Jesus says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do the same, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a real popular kind of a slogan that's of a famous shoe company that's called Just Do It. Do you guys know who says that? Nike, right? Everybody knows that. That's been their slogan since 1982, I think. So they've had it for years and years and years. But I don't know if you know that there was another slogan before that that was very popular in the 60s. Do your own thing. Just do your own thing. Now, why are those kind of slogans so popular? Because people think real freedom is just do what you want to do. Again, it's this idea of license. In In the Christian world, a theological term is antinomianism. Big word. What it basically means is that yeah, I'm saved by grace, but 
<laughs> I'm free to do what I want to do. But can I tell you, God wants you to live a holy life. God's desire desires you to be salt and light. Remember salt and light? You represent Him in this world. People see Christ in you. And your life, it matters. It matters a lot. Now, what this idea of license or antinomianism means, it means it takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. The biblical teaching is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He fulfilled the Old Testament law. That's true. The unbiblical conclusion is that there's no moral law for the Christians to obey. That's false. I'm going to work that out for you. Some Christians claim that because of God's grace, it just covers all our sins, and so what's the point? I can just do what I want. And it doesn't matter really anyway, because when we get to heaven, we're, we're perfected, and so, dude, I get to do whatever I want. But can I tell you, it matters to God. Now, in verse 17, Jesus pointed to the law's preeminence. It is unchanging. It is infallible. It is authoritative. Verse 18, he showed the law's permanence. It will not pass away till heaven and earth pass. But here in verse 19, he talks about its pertinence, that it still applies today, that it's very important today. And he says here, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do the same should be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I think he's thinking about those Pharisees right there. They had all these traditions. They just kind of pounded them in, and they just put the law law aside. However, whoever keeps and teaches shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's consequences if we obey or disobey. And he starts here with the negative consequences. Whoever then annuls the least of these commandments and teaches others shall be least in the kingdom. Now, that word annuls is a Greek word, luo, and it's a compound word. And and what it means is to break or release or dissolve. It literally has has this picture of uh, breaking something off, throwing it away. I want you to understand right up front, though, disobedience to the law does not mean that you've lost your salvation. But there is a negative right here. And the idea is that somebody cancels out the law or they make the law void. Now, he talks about rank in heaven, least and greatest, and that's up to God. But Jesus here declares that those who will be be held in low esteem are those who hold the Word of God in low esteem. And those who will be held in high esteem in the kingdom of God are those who hold the Word of God in high esteem. And I think the idea is that the blessing and reward and fruitfulness and joy and usefulness will be sacrificed to the extent that you sacrifice the Word of God. And blessing and reward and fullness and joy will be had to the extent that you honor the Word of God. And Scripture is clear. There are commands that seem to be more important than other commands. Now, we know this because a lawyer talked to Jesus and he asked him the question, hey, which is the greatest? And Jesus' response was in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second one is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus said, hey, you have a greatest commandment, then you have a second. And so there seems to be some that seem greater than others, but the point that Jesus is making here is you do not annul one, any, because everything that God has written and everything that God has expressed in the Scriptures is important. And how do we annul Scripture? Well, one way is by ignoring it. I'll do what I want. Another one is disobeying it. I know what it says, but I'm not doing that. Another one is teaching others to disobey it. That's serious stuff to God. Now, this idea of teaching all of it, Paul the Apostle expressed that in the book of Acts. 2027, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And the idea there is Paul understands that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's important. I don't know if you know this about Calvary chapels, but the reason that we exposit Scripture, that we work through Scripture texts, is because it's very important for us to, to work through the whole Bible. Now, last year, 
We worked through the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament text. We moved into this year, we went into the Sermon on the Mount, New Testament text. I think God wants us to go to an epistle after that. We'll be in that for a while, but we're going to go from there, probably an Old Testament text again. Why? Because we want you to have the whole counsel of God. And it's important that God wants us to do that. So there's a negative consequence, but also there's a positive consequence. When you honor God's word, when you keep his word and teach others to do the same, he says you'll be considered great in the kingdom of God. Verse 19, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. So Jesus mentions two different aspects of the Christian life, keeping which is doing and then teaching. And both of them apply to us. The keeping is the living. When the word of God changes you and impacts you, it impacts the way you live with others inside out. That's what he was talking about in the Beatitudes. Your life should be an example of salt and light to others. They see Jesus in you. But it's not just that. It's also teaching. You're to learn the Word of God. There's power in the Word. Power to save. And you're to share the Word of God. And by the way, it's not just pastors and preachers he's talking to. Right here, he's talking to kingdom people. Us. If you claim Christ, you're to live it. And you're to preach it and teach it. It's both. Now, the psalmist put a value on the word. And the idea is our attitude drives our actions. And the attitude that we should have as God's people is that we treasure the word. It means the world to me. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 19 understood this. He said, they, being the scriptures, are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The most, the most important metal and priciest metal in that day was gold. It was worth everything. But do you know the most valuable food was honey? They didn't have sugar. But the Word of God is more valuable than either of those. That's the idea. I treasure the Word. And so greatness in the kingdom of God is the person, not, it's not determined by your gifting, it, and, and it's not determined by your success, it's not determined by your popularity, it's not even determined by the different ministries that you do. Greatness will be how you live out the word and how you teach the word to others. Now, I don't know if you know who R.C. Sproul is. He's a very well-known Bible teacher. He died recently. But R.C. Sproul credited his salvation to a young man that he met when he was in college. R.C. Sproul had won a scholarship as a football player to a Christian college, but he didn't believe it. So he went to that college, and he was talking about the second week he was there, he was with his roommate, and they decided they were going to cross a border to go get drunk. But he, they were going out to the parking lot, and I don't know what border it was, but he goes, oh, I forgot my cigarettes. And so he runs back into the dormitory area, and there was a, a, a cigarette machine. My guess is it's probably in the 50s. And so you wouldn't have that today, right? But he goes in there and he gets his pack of luckies. And I guess sitting at a table there was the, the captain of the football team. And the captain of the football team, hey, come here and talk to me. And he called R.C. And, and his good friend over. And this is what R.C. Sproul, he said, this was the first person I ever met in my life that talked about Christ as a reality. And he said, I had never heard anything like it. He said, I was just absorbed. And we sat there for almost three hours and he said he didn't give the traditional evangelistic appeal. He just spoke about his life and he spoke about the scriptures. And listen to the scripture that captured R.C. Sproul's heart. Greg Brewer, you're going to love this one. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 3 says, Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. R.C. said, I feel certain that I'm the only person in church history that was converted by that verse. <laughs> And he says, God took that verse and he said, he struck my soul with it. He said, I saw myself as a log rotting in the woods in the great kingdom of God without God. And he said, after that meeting, he went upstairs to his room and he knelt down and he opened his heart to Christ and he confessed his sin and he received Christ right there. Now, the reason I share this is because that young man shared his life and he shared the word and he would be considered great in the kingdom of God. Two things we've seen. Jesus upheld and fulfilled the scriptures. And we as kingdom people are to keep and teach the scriptures. Third thing, kingdom people 
find freedom and forgiveness in the Scriptures. So what place do the Scriptures hold in the kingdom? Kingdom people, we will find freedom and forgiveness in the Scriptures. Understand, when Jesus came on the scene, He taught the exact opposite of of the scribes and Pharisees. They taught, do it, fix it, you can merit it. Mm -mm. Listen to what He said right in verse 20. He says, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing there is he's confronting the religious teachers of the day. And I want you to understand, they taught that you could obtain heaven, a right standing with God, by your merit, by your religious effort, like Jacob that we met there in the Mission Viejo Mall. Now, think about the people that are listening. They're shocked. You need to understand, they viewed the Pharisees and the scribe in very high esteem. It was an honor to be a Pharisee. The scribes are considered the experts in the law. The reason we look at them negative is because of the teaching of Jesus. But in that day when Jesus said that, they were shocked. Now, now understand where they're coming from. They're thinking, those guys are the cream of the crop. I mean, they're, they're at the very top of the religious food chain. If they can't do it, it's not their righteousness. And i got to be better than them, I'm out. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your righteousness needs to surpass the most religious people that have ever lived on this earth. Mother Teresa on steroids. More. What do we do? That's the point. You can't do. Your righteousness cannot do it. That is the point. The implied truth in this verse, the purpose of God's law was not to show, to please God, to be worthy of citizenship in His kingdom. More righteousness is required. And again, the law was not given so people could keep it. The law of God, the commandments of God were given so that we would see we can't do it. It makes us aware of our sin. Now, Paul wrote that in Romans 3.20. He said, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Do you see it? The law justifies no one. But the knowledge of it, it makes us recognize that we're a sinner We're desperate for God's grace. It helps people acknowledge where they're at. Now, this is the whole point of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, 10 through 14 says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he stood and he was praying this to himself. It's interesting, he says he's praying to himself. But God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay my tithes and all that I get. But the tax collector, he was standing some distance away, and he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast, and he was saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." The tax collector was despised by the most religious person of the day. But in God's eyes, he was accepted. Why? He had a broken and contrite heart. What Jesus is saying here, it has to do with your heart. The Pharisees, hey, they look good, man. Whitewashed tombs, great on the outside, dead. Dead on the inside. That tax collector, heartbroken over his sin. Oh, God, do you see the difference? The gospel of Jesus Christ will drive us to Christ because it deals with our sin first. And we recognize we can't do it. We can't do it. Now, Jesus is critical of these scribes in a a number of ways. First, he's critical because they have what's known as external righteousness. Nothing of the heart. And Romans 3.12 says there's none righteous. There's not even one. 
And their righteousness was partial righteousness. They, they did some things right, but most of the things they did wrong. And so when Jesus spoke about them in Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and common, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. External righteousness, partial righteousness. Also, they redefine the Scriptures. They change them. Basically, to fit so they could make it. Just like Jacob. Well, if I do these three things, I made it. <laughs> no, the Scripture doesn't say that. There's a fourth thing. Their righteousness was self-focused, not God-focused. It really was all about them. So what is the righteousness that God requires? Again, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes. The term surpasses literally means a river overflowing. It's got to be so much more. And it reminds me of the rich young ruler. Right? He, he comes to Jesus, and, and, and this, this rich young ruler, he thinks he's got it made. I've kept the law. But if you remember the end of the story, it says he walks away sorrowful. And what I want you to see about that story, Peter then responds like, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Understand the righteousness you need is from God. It must be given to us. It must be received. Now, what does righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees look like? Well, first... God wants an inner righteousness. He demands a change of the heart. It must be transformation. This is why he says you must be born again. There's a change. And when God looks at man, he doesn't look as man does. He sees the heart. Also, God no longer requires inner righteousness. He requires perfect righteousness. Without one sin. That's the problem. And that's where Jesus comes in. Understand, Jesus is our righteousness. Now, Paul explains this kind of moving towards the close of my message in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, who believe, for there is no distinction for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through redemption which is in Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. Now, I know that's a lot, so I'm just going to kind of touch on each one. If you could keep it there, Tom, just on those verses and kind of walk with me through. In verse 21, he tells us apart from the law, God's righteousness has been manifested. That means revealed. God has revealed His righteousness that He needs in Christ. Verses 22 and 23, He tells us that perfect righteousness is received through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no distinction. That means it's available to all. We're all in the same boat. Verse 24, He tells us that people are justified not by the law, but by God's grace, by His free gift. We have a substitute that we need, and Jesus is that substitute. And verse 25 shows us that Jesus became the perfect substitute that we needed. It says that He was a propitiation for us. That means He became an atonement for sin on the cross. And not only did He take our sin, pay for it, but He gives us a right standing with God. Propitiation means that God, the Father, laid His wrath on the Son. And He took the hit for us. And so if you're here this morning and you do not trust in Jesus Christ, you will stand on your own two feet and God is a just God and He will judge you rightly. But there will be judgment. But the gospel, and what's so beautiful about the gospel is that we need to understand this. Now, it's been interesting. I've been talking to a couple on Friday nights and we were dealing with this idea of the law and the gospel. And I shared with them three things on how we become the kind of people that God exists. And the first thing is this. It is through the gospel that we become aware of our disobedience to God's law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel helps us to see our need. 
Because in the gospel, you have to share the bad news before you see the good news. The gospel shares with us, you're sinners who've offended God. And so first, the gospel of Christ, it helps us to see our need. Second thing is through faith in the gospel, truth of Jesus and his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, that we find acceptance. The good news is that God was willing to forgive us in Christ. So not only do we see our need, but it's in Christ where we find that acceptance. And third thing, it is through the gospel that we understand that God also gives us His Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit enables us to actually live out this thing. Now understand there's no perfection, but the Holy Spirit within you will give you a love for God and a love for His Word. And because of the Spirit, it actually empowers us to actually live it out. I can actually say no to sin and yes to God because of the Spirit of God within me. It's beautiful. The law drives us to Jesus, and then Jesus frees us to love God and love the Word and live it because He gives us the Spirit. And so the unique part about the gospel is that Christ has done it, and we believe it, and by the Spirit, we can live it. Now, I shared with you that we met this other gentleman by the name of Charles. So Jacob, he's the perfect picture of legalism. Charles would be the opposite of that. So we asked Charles the same question. Okay, if you stand before God, and he says, why shall I light you into heaven? What would you say? His response was, well, when I get to heaven, I'll just ask for forgiveness. No big deal. What does that mean? Got this license. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live the way I want right here, and I'll just deal with it then. A big man upstairs, get up there. Just forgive me, man. It's cool, right? Again, Understand that Hebrews says that there's one life to live now and then the judgment. There's no purgatory. There's no holding place. You get no place to work it off. There's no nirvana, multiple levels to try to reach or attain. There's one life. There's no reincarnation. You don't get to come back as something else or someone else. You have one life. Christ is the answer. The gospel truth is the answer. The issue, do you trust Him? Do you believe? Let's bow our heads. Father, we turn to You now, and I thank You that You've shown us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And Lord, I thank You that we can turn to You at any time by faith. And I pray that You would do that now for the people here. That if there's anyone here, Father, that's been living a life of legalism or a life of license, or if there's someone here that just didn't understand, I pray that you would bring them into the kingdom of God by your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just have you stand? Now, Jacob was open, and he'd been prepared by the Holy Spirit, and he received Christ that day. Charles was not, wanted nothing to do with it. Like the rich young ruler, he walked away sad. But I want to help you this morning. I I truly believe that every Sunday there's an opportunity. There's a reason you are here. I know there are some of you that are new here. And if you've come here and you find, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm that legalistic guy. I got all these things I'm trying to do for God. Or maybe you're the licensed guy. Ah, I thought it was just no big deal. Or maybe you just didn't understand. I want to help you. First, you need to recognize. Recognize God's love for you. The Bible says that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. There's a deep love that God has for you. You need to recognize that, but then you need to realize God is holy, 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 holy. And your sin offends God. You are a sinner. And you cannot attain it. We just talked about that. You can't attain what's needed. So you need to recognize His love, but you have to realize your condition, which leads us to the third point. You must repent. Jesus came and He preached, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. You must turn from your sin and you must turn to Christ because He is that fulfillment of the law. 
And lastly, you must receive. Receive. Now John puts it like this in John 1.12, as many as believed in him, to those who received him, he gives the right to become children of God. I want to give you an opportunity right now to receive Jesus Christ. Some of you have been bound by the law. You need to be freed. Others, uh, others of you feel that there has been no law. You need to be freed. Come to Christ. If that's you this morning, if you'd like to receive Christ, I want to pray with you. So let's bow our heads. And if this is you, you can pray in your heart. You can pray out loud, whatever the Lord leads. But you can repeat this after me. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am a sinner. I recognize, Lord, that you love me now. I recognize that you sent Jesus into the world to die for my sin. I realize that I have offended you by my sin. And I turn by faith and repent. And I turn to Jesus. Lord, I, I put my trust, my faith in him alone. I know he paid for my sins on the cross. Lord, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. I pray that you will take my sin. And I pray that you will help me. And you'll help me to walk and honor you with my life. And teach me. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.